following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's read uh, from verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as those as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Um, I know not everybody is a sports fan and necessarily loves sports, but if you, if you uh, enjoy sports at some level... Um, you, you probably had the experience of celebrating a, a close game and a victory at the, at the last seconds. Anybody ever been rooting for a team or been on a team where it was very close and it was coming down to the, the, the end of the game and uh, at the last few seconds your team pulls it out? And what do you do when that happens? The buzzer goes off and you're, you're the winner uh, what do most people do? They kind of go crazy, right? People jumping up and down and screaming and shouting. Like normal, everyday, like sane people all of a sudden go crazy, right? Because it's so exciting. <clears throat> and, and, you know, you don't have to, if you're in that kind of situation, you normally don't have to tell people, well, we should probably celebrate now. It would be the right thing to do, right? No, you can't help it, right? You are excited. And I love what uh, Grace shared this morning about uh, our worship. Great intro to what I want to talk about, that worship ought to be a natural response when we uh, just stand amazed at what we have in Christ. Like like the person who's just won a great victory. Uh, We should be over just bursting with joy and enthusiasm at who God is and what he's done for us. And uh, that's really what worship is. That's one of the reasons we have... Uh, you know, in our worship singing um, set, you know, we put the the majority of it at the end of the uh, at the end after the after the message because we want it to be a response, and we hope that during the word you you meet God in some way that's real, that God comes alive to you, you meet Him, encounter Him, and and you want to respond in worship. Well, that's really what the uh, author, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is hoping for as well as he's drawing to the end of his sermon. Last chapter, and and as we've said, the book of Hebrews is really a written sermon, uh, more than it is a letter. And uh, he's just kind of hit the pinnacle climax of his sermon in chapter 12. And he ends with these amazing words. He says that, um, you know, we need to be paying attention to his message, paying attention to what he said about who God is and all that he's made available for us through Christ. And he's just spent the whole book explaining these amazing riches and treasures that we have in Christ. And it says, therefore, in verse 28, therefore, the result of all this 
is that we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. And so that's really what what he hopes will be the net effect or result of his sermon, is that people will be so excited about what they've heard that they will want to worship God more seriously and more intently and more passionately. And uh, certainly worship is, is what we do on Sunday morning when we sing together, and that, that is one expression of worship. But what he's picturing is much greater than that. He's picturing a life that uh, where our whole life, everything we think and say and do, is offered up to God as a gift of worship and praise. That we do it for Him. We do it as a gift to, uh, to honor Him. And he says that this worship is to be acceptable. And the idea there is, is that it's, it's well-pleasing to God. And it's kind of an amazing thing to think that God sits in heaven and He looks down at our lives. And when we, do, we can do certain things that God delights in, much like the spectators at a sports event. And he looks out at you and he sees you do something really cool and God gets up and he jumps up and down and he goes, wow, that was so cool. Did you see that? Right? He delights in our life when we do it to please him. And that's what this is about. And so this last chapter, <clears throat> um, he talks about what that looks like. What is a life that, that's well-pleasing to God? What does that look like? And it's more than just gathering on Sunday mornings to sing praise songs to him. And again, that's, that's awesome and we should do that. But he's wanting us to live every part of our life in a manner that is worshipful, that is well-pleasing to God. Uh, so what specifically should we be doing if that's true? Well, in chapter 13, uh, up to the very last few words, he really gives us in kind of bullet point uh, list some, some of the things that that would look like. If we want to live our life in worship to God, here's some things you should be doing. Uh, but it's important to keep the perspective that we do these things not out of duty or obligation, like, oh, I got those things I got to do. No, the Spirit's to be one of joyful worship and celebration of all that God has given us. And we do these things because we really want to honor and please God. So he talks about these things, and uh, all, all the things in, in the first six verses, the first six verses really form a paragraph or a unit, and it kind of sets off with the, the great heading, uh, Let Brotherly Love Continue. Uh, and uh, he, he implies that they, this is not something new for them, he acknowledges that they have been loving each other as brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. But he says, keep it up. Keep up that brotherly love. Don't let it slip or fall. Keep at it. Because that, if it's done out of a, out of a spirit of thankfulness to God, it it can and should be worship. And it's something that's very pleasing to God. God loves it when his people love each other. And he talks here about a specific kind of love. He's talking here about brotherly love. Uh, and it's good to kind of back up and think about what love is to start with. What is love? And the world has lots of definitions. And uh, love can mean many, many different things. Because we can use that word to talk about loving pizza or loving your wife. And I'm pretty hopeful that those are not exactly the same thing, right? Um, hopefully there's a difference there. So we use the word very broadly. And as it's used in Scripture, uh, the kind of love that is God's love, that, that the Scripture upholds as love, would be, um, uh, as, as Jesus speaks of love, as the principle of life as it ought to be, he is referring mainly to the posture of benefiting others in the ordinary relations of ordinary life. 
This comes from Dallas Willard, who's great at defining things. Um, He also says, love is the will to good. Encouragement and actions on behalf of a person's good are love and give life. One who loves promotes the good or wills the benefits and strengths of the beloved. So when when the Bible talks about love, he's talking about uh, wanting, wishing, working toward the benefit and good of others. And we're, we're commanded to love everybody. Right now, I just looked it up this morning, uh, there are 7.7 billion people on the earth, and we're to love all of them, right? We are to wish for, hope for, work towards the benefit of all humanity. Uh, but how we love 7 billion people on planet earth versus how we love our neighbor is going to be, and look, very differently, right? If we're concerned about the environment or we do things and push for peace in the world, those are things that we can do that we hope will benefit all 7.7 billion people. Uh, so, so it's true that we can love people all around the world, uh, and, but, but it's not going to be very personal. It's not going to be very personal. Um, and there's another kind of love that Jesus talks about where you love your neighbor. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he talks about who is my neighbor. And Jesus defines your neighbor as the person who is right in front of you and who is in need. And the reality is that love gets more personal, more real, more tangible the closer you are in proximity and in relationship to a person. So here's the deal. The person sitting right next to you this morning, you can love them more specifically and more intentionally than you can the person living in somewhere in Uzbekistan, right? Now somebody, somebody's going to say, well, I work in Uzbekistan. I have friends there. Okay, well, for you it's different, but assume you don't, Okay. <laughs> Um, it's the problem with this congregation. <laughs> like, you guys are everywhere. Um, so, so, so the people closer to you, you love, not with a different kind of love, because you're still hoping and willing for their good, doing what will benefit them, uh, doing what is best for them. That's still love. But you do it in a more personal, hands-on way the closer they are to you. And in this passage, he, he narrows it down even more, not just loving everybody or loving just your neighbor, but he's talking here about brotherly love. Right? And he's talking here about love within the community, the church. Right? He's talking to the family of God, the people in the church, believers in Christ, and he's talking about how they as a church are to be loving each other. And he says, your love has the scope or the realm of family relationship. And family relationship is the kind of love where the scope of it is the most intimate, personal, and connected. Because we don't live any closer or have any greater relationship besides those who are in our family, right? I mean, you can talk about your neighbor, but but when you're talking about your family, you're talking about people you live with all the time and are as close to you as, as, as is possible. And he says, this is the kind of relationship that is to characterize the local church. Right, the local body of believers who meet together as God's people. He says, let brotherly love continue. Um, so so here's, the, here's the thing. This is kind of startling news for some of us. You know, I think what he's saying here is we have to love Christians like family. What? <laughs> right? You mean I have to love Christians? No, it's funny. Um, uh, especially here in Chiang Mai, I've had numerous conversations with uh, full-time Christian workers and missionaries who will tell me, you know, I didn't come here to love Christians. I think that's dumb. 
Right? Let Christians take care of themselves. I don't care about them. Right? The world's dying and going to hell, and we need to love the lost. I don't have time for those stupid Christians. Right? I haven't heard it with quite those words exactly, but pretty much that, in, that sentiment or that mentality or that attitude gets communicated often. And it's true that oftentimes the church has become so ingrown and infocused and so wrapped up in themselves that we've lost the vision for the Great Commission, for taking the gospel to the lost people of the world. But it is, it is vitally wrong. It is a huge error in thinking if you think that loving the lost means neglecting your family, whether it's your immediate family, as in your spouse and your children, or your spiritual family, meaning the church. You cannot fulfill the Great Commission, I'm convinced, if you neglect the church. And here's why. There's a couple of good reasons why. Uh, uh, first of all, well, first of all, it's because the Bible commands it, okay? He's telling you here, keep up brotherly love. So that's one good reason, as the Scripture says we have to. Uh, but there's a co- other couple of significant reasons. First reason is that uh, the author knows, and as, as we know from the context of who he's writing to, that they were in the midst of a huge spiritual battle. And they were in the midst of that spiritual battle because they were being salt and light in a very lost and dark world. And they were being persecuted for their faith because they were vocal in their witness for Christ. And here's the awesome, the, the, the true reality, <clears throat> not awesome, but the, the stark reality, that if you are out there engaging the enemy... If you are confronting Satan and in his, his realm of darkness and you are trying to bring the gospel to lost people, you are in a spiritual battle. And nowhere in Scripture does it say you should be doing that all by yourself. Right? Uh, Jesus did not say that you know, when you go out there all by yourself, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. That is not what Jesus said. He said, uh, against the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. The people of God. God never intended you to strap on your armor and go out there and take on Satan all by yourself. And uh, those who do that, pretty much you get just flat run over. Because it's not how it's supposed to work. God put us in a family in the body of Christ where there are many gifts and many skills and many ways that we serve him. And we are to do it together with brotherly love as one body where we support and help each other out. Right, where we are not individuals taking on the enemy, but we are, we are the body of Christ. We are an army of God's faithful people engaging and taking the gospel and seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. So that's one huge reason, is that uh, you can't do this by yourself. You need the body. You need the church. You need your family in Christ to be going out with you. But second, second thing is that... Um, uh, the, the fact is that uh, Jesus says uh, in, in several different places that who you are as the body of Christ, your relationships and how you love each other as God's people is your most effective witness to the truth and the reality of Jesus. Right? Your greatest apologetic, in other words, the greatest defense we have to prove that Jesus is real, <clears throat> that he came down from heaven and that he died for us as as God's greatest act of love, is the way we treat each other as the church. So so Jesus says in John 13.35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
So if, if we're not loving each other, if we're not taking this seriously, we, we've just cut in half, or, or, or worse, our witness, the very effectiveness of the message we're trying to proclaim. Right? Um, Jesus also says in John chapter 17, he prays uh, in his high priestly prayer, uh, these amazing words. He says, I do not ask for these only, that is, his immediate disciples, but also for those who, w- who will believe in me through their word. So that's us, right? His, the church that would, would spring up as a result of the ministry of the early apostles. And what is this prayer? His prayer is that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Why? So that they, that is the world, may also, be, so they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Right? Our unity, our oneness, our love for each other is how the world is going to believe that Jesus is real. Um, so when we abandon the church, when we, when we say to ourselves, I don't have time for Christians, and I'm here to do ministry, I don't have time for this church thing or for relationships, because I am so busy in ministry, I mean, we are cutting off the branch we're sitting on, he says. Right? You want to be effective? You want to really be effective in reaching people for Jesus? Then you need to love the people of God. Because it is our witness. It is how we show the world who we are. Here's the reality. When you invite somebody to Christ, you're not only inviting them to come to Jesus and have a relationship with him, but you're actually inviting them into your spiritual family. Uh, do, you really, do you really think that's a good idea to invite them into your spiritual family? <laughs> Is this a family that people would feel like, I would love to be a part of this group of people because they love and care for each other like family. Because they're interested in each other's lives and they're there to help and support each other and look after each other and care for each other. Or do they see the church as something where most people go to fight or they're just so distant and detached from each other's lives that it's anything but a community. If we're, if we're going to proclaim Jesus and invite people to him, we invite people into our community of fellowship, of relationships, of family in the body of Christ. So it is a big deal. And uh, we need to take seriously uh, our brotherly and sisterly love towards the body of Christ. And he, uh, he lists three ways that we should be doing that. Firstly, he says, um, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And again here, he's talking specifically about the church. Uh, but he's talking here not only about the local church, but uh, in, in ancient times, in the way he would have used the word hospitality, hospitality essentially meant offering food and lodging to travelers. Like, we think hospitality is inviting my neighbors over for ice cream or something, which is, which is a good thing, and that is also hospitality. But in, in the New Testament context, what it primarily related to was offering a lodging and food to travelers. And uh, as the church, uh, if it was to spread and grow, it spread in two ways. One, uh, itinerant preachers like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas would go out traveling to new regions where the gospel had never been preached. And they were largely dependent on the hospitality of the church and the places that they went to host them, <coughs> to help them on their way. Uh, back then, you know, <coughs> no Airbnb. <coughs> Sorry. 
Uh, no Airbnb, you know, no Travelocity. Couldn't just you know get on the web and book your lodging. And in fact, there was oftentimes lodging, but it was known to be quite dangerous and a very unsafe place. So, uh, so for the gospel to spread, they needed to be welcoming strangers, not because they weren't in the body of Christ, but strangers, people they did not know, and welcoming them in as brothers and sisters. Now, of course, we live in a different day and age, and I don't know that there's a practical way to do this like they did. I guess you could go to the airport with a sign, if you're a missionary, come talk to me, I'll let you stay at my house. I, you could do that. Uh, but I don't know that's really necessary, because we, you know, we do have uh, ways to arrange for that. But I think that there is a principle here that when people come to a new place, when they are a stranger to a new place, life is hard for them. Do you all remember uh, the first few days of your life here in Chiang Mai, right? I remember mine. And, you know, I remember going to the grocery store and spending hours trying to find, like, the most basic things and not even knowing what I was looking at. And coming back with this big bag of white granulated stuff we thought was sugar and putting it in my coffee and taking a sip only to find out it was salt. Like, who sells salt in a bag, right? Um, It's hard when you come to a new place. And we live in a place where there are strangers coming all the time who really need our help. Like, they need to know the difference between salt and sugar at at Lotus, right? Um, uh, That's showing hospitality. It's welcoming them and helping them figure it out, how you do life cross-culturally in a strange place in a strange world. Uh, Many other ways I'm sure we could apply that, but uh, the point is we should be looking out for the strangers, the new people, the people who, who don't quite know where to go and come alongside them to help them out. People come into CCF, are we identifying the strangers, the new people, who just got here, you know, they got that deer in a headlight look on their face and they're looking a little shocked, you know, or we're like, well, this is sad to be them. I'm glad I'm not there anymore. And walk past them. Or do we help them? <coughs> uh, do we offer our hospitality? Next, and he says, by the way, um, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He's thinking probably of Abraham and others who in the Old Testament helped a traveler and it turned out it was like God or an angel. I don't think he's saying or suggesting that this may happen to you, but I think the point is this. Um, The blessing you receive will be far greater than the blessing you give. This is going to be painful. When you help others, you will be far more blessed by it than even those you're helping. And he moves on and he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are in the body. Of course, we know that the church was being persecuted. And that's part of why many of them that he was writing to were considering leaving the faith. Going back to the old ways of Judaism. Because uh, they didn't put you in jail for being a Jew, for following and worshiping at the temple. But they were putting you in jail, in prison for following Jesus. And so their friends, their body, some of them were in prison, some of them were being mistreated, their possessions were being taken, and they were being beaten and, and uh, abused. And he says, you know, help those people. And he, he talks about what that help should look like. He says, you should be helping them as if it was you. Like if you were in prison, what would you want people to do to help you? If you were being mistreated, if your property was being taken... <coughs> 
What would you be doing to, what would you be hoping people would be doing for you? Now, of course, uh, in Thailand, not true. I mean, our neighbor to the north right now, people are being put in jail. And uh, that's, that happens with the body of Christ in different places in the world. Uh, but here, you're probably not going to be put in prison, but it doesn't mean that people don't meet hardship and difficulty and struggle. Uh, living cross-culturally uh, is stressful. And for some people, they just kind of live their whole life right on the edge of, like, huge crisis. And something happens, their child gets sick, or uh, their, their home church decides they're not going to support them anymore. Uh, whatever happens, some crisis point, and, and people feel like they are overwhelmed. Right? Are we aware, do we have the kind of relationships with each other that we're, we're, we even notice when somebody has, like, hit the wall? And they're feeling crushed by life. And when we do, uh, the, the thing to ask is, if I was in their shoes, what would I wish and hope somebody would do for me? And that's what you should do for them. Right? That's what you should reach out and, and love them in that way. Um, next thing he says, and this may seem uh, like it doesn't quite relate, but it actually does. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Um, he says, one of the ways that we show brotherly love, and this is, again, this is not towards individual couples. He's not saying to each couple, you take care of your marriage relationship. This is a duty and a responsibility of the body of Christ together. And he's saying, we together should guard marriages. And we should treat marriage as something sacred and holy that we guard and protect. Right? And we do that in two ways. One, we do that by how we treat those of the opposite sex who aren't our spouse. Right? We, should, we should interact. We should love people. We should have relationships. But our relationships with somebody else's husband or wife need to be pure and holy. Right? We need to treat them with respect and guard their marriage and their relationship. Right? So we shouldn't be flirting with people or being uh, worldly in our relationships with those of the opposite sex in the church. Right? The world should look at us and they should be amazed at how we hold each other in purity and sanctity. Right? So that doesn't matter if we're married or single. Right? This applies to us, how we treat those who are married. Uh, another point that I think is legitimate here is that uh, when people are struggling, it is the responsibility of the whole body. Like they were to hold each other accountable to our moral purity. And the consequences and stakes are high here. He says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Uh, one of the sad things I've had to deal with several times in my years here is deal with Christians who have fallen and gone off into adulterous and immoral relationships. Uh, and in every case that I've been closely involved with where this has happened, uh, it's been people who have held themselves aloof and, and apart from close relationships in the body of Christ. Right? They've, they've kept people at a distance. Right? So we need those close relationships where people can love us by holding us accountable and asking us hard questions. Right? Are, you, are you careful with what you view on your computer and on your phone, the videos you watch and the movies you watch? Uh, we should have the right and the kind of relationship where we can ask each other those kind of questions. And where we should invite people to ask us those kind of questions. Um, that's brotherly love. And that's guarding. That's holding in, in value and honor 
marriage and moral purity. Right? So we should help each other out that way. Um, so those are the kind of things that we, sh- we should be doing. And there's a, a lot more. And he's just giving here some brief highlights of what brotherly love looks like. Showing hospitality, helping those who are hurting, keeping marriage sacred. And then he ends by, uh, by talking about one of the great obstacles to loving others. A huge, in fact, a huge obstacle to really loving other people. He says this. He says, keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, that is, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Uh, Without a doubt, one of the greatest obstacles to loving people uh, generously and freely is our own love for stuff, right? And, And here's the deal. Love is easy if love only requires giving away your junk. Um, now, you may think, well, who that? what kind of love is that? Well, I've experienced this kind of love. Many years, we were pastors in a, in a rural church in Colorado, and uh, people would love us with their junk. And they would call us up on the phone, and they'd say, we got this old, beat-up, dusty couch that's broken, and we're going to take it to the dump. But if you want it, we'll give it to you, and it'll save us $25. Oh, yay! Right? And the sad reality is we... We were so desperate, we took the broken, dusty, uh, on the way to the dump couch, right? And bed and furniture. I mean, our house was filled with everybody else's throwaway junk. Uh, now, that kind of love is easy, right? But, but, but uh, and, 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 and people say, and see how we love our, see how we love and take care of our pastor? <laughs> Thanks. Um, and they were, they were being kind and generous, I and mean, I love those people, and they, they had the best intentions. But, um, you know, that kind of love is easy. But, but the brotherly love, the family love that he's talking about, oftentimes involves giving sacrificially. And the reality, reality is, the reason it's hard to love people is it crashes against my selfishness. Right? Because normally helping people, loving people, requires giving of time and energy and resources that I want to hold on to. And if we love money, if we love our stuff, if we believe that our happiness is tied up in the things that we possess and the comfortable lifestyle that we've surrounded ourselves with, we're going to find it really difficult to, to love and care for other people generously. Right? And, and this is what marked the early church. Right? These people, these people were nuts. They would, go out, they would actually sell property and they would take it the proceeds and lay at the apostles' feet and say, give that away to people in need. And you say, well, that's just crazy because then, you know, all of a sudden you're now without property and you don't have your safety net. And we, you know, we love our safety nets, right? We love our bank accounts. We love our savings. We love our insurance policies. And I'm not saying all of that is wrong or sinful or bad. But it can come dangerously close to idolatry when we trust in those things more than we trust in God. And here's here's the reality. A lot of us would say, well, you know, I I know how this would work. You know, I would sell my land and I would give it away and I'd bless others. But then when I had need, how do I know they're going to help me? And and the cool thing is if the church really did this, like just imagine if everybody really did this, if people really helped each other out, we really honestly wouldn't need safety nets. right? I wouldn't need my savings. If I knew I could count on, on my Christian family 
to come alongside me and help me out when I'm in a time of crisis and need. But of course, nobody wants to be the one guy, the only guy that's doing it, right? Like, I know I'm going to do this, and no, but when I have need, nobody's going to help me, so I better keep my safety net around me. I better hang on to my cash and my stuff. But uh, it's almost as if he anticipates this question or this problem, and he says, look, the problem is not trusting in the body, looking at the body of Christ to take care of you, right? Um, we would hope that would happen. But he says, that's not either even where your trust lies. We don't trust money. We don't trust people. He says this. He says, for God has said, uh, I will never leave you or forsake you. God has said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. And the word there, he has said, implies that this promise was made to people a long time ago, a long, long time ago but that the promise is still as relevant today as it was back then. That it's a promise God is still speaking to you and I in a very real and relevant way now. God speaks this promise to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It has the idea that God, will, as, as a loving father, will never abandon us. And the word forsake has the idea of he will not ever, ever neglect And if you have your Greek Bibles, you can turn there and confirm this. But the first never is actually a double negative. I will never, ever leave you. Never, never leave you. And the the second one is a triple negative. Nor will I never, ever, ever neglect you. There's a lot of emphasis there on the never part. Uh, God promises to take care of you completely. Always. Always day by day, everything that you need. Now, it doesn't mean that God won't discipline us and sometimes bring hardship or difficult things. It doesn't mean that God won't bring things into our life to stretch our faith so that we learn to trust him more. But we can be confident that God will never leave us alone. That he will never leave us to crash and burn. He's promised to take care of us and to provide and sustain us and to give us everything that we need. Um, So he says, because God has said that, then we can say this. He says in verse 6, so we can say confidently. And I love this. We can say this. We can say this and not believe it, but the hope is that we say this with such confidence that it's true that this becomes the, the foundation, the anchor of our life. We can say confidently, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. I will not fear anything. I will not fear anything about the future. Because I know God is going to take care of me. I think a great exercise is is to do this. To go home and practice this. Saying this. right, And try to say it with as much confidence as you can possibly muster. So it's not like, The Lord is my helper, I think. I won't fear too much. Right? That would not be the way to practice it. You need to practice with confidence. I'm not sure if I can do this, but the Lord is my helper. Hallelujah. I will not fear. Right? Go ahead and practice it right now. No, you don't have to do it. Too embarrassing. Um, if this is true, really came, and this is where Hebrews 11.1 1 comes in, right? Faith is the conviction of, uh, of the things hoped for, 
like the hope that God's going to take care of me, no matter what. And it is the evidence or proof of things not seen, like an invisible God who's out there, who is constantly with us, in whose presence we live, and who's promised to be continually taking care of us. And, and the point here is not just that we would have great confidence and would, would you know, not worry about our future, but the point is that when we have this kind of confidence, when we can hold all of our stuff that loosely, when we've learned to be content with what I have, it's not be a love of money, but learn to be satisfied with what you have, whatever it is, and not want more because you know God's going to take care of you. Because you know your, your happiness and your satisfaction and joy is in God, not in stuff. Right? When we get to that place in life, which I'm not there yet, right? I'm still working on it. When we get to that place in life, we will be able to love people with, with inc- incredibly more generosity. And, and with a free spirit that's not holding on, grudging, worrying. Well, if I help, if I'm nice to them, what happens tomorrow? Right? We will, we will have a free generosity that gives and loves to give and loves to help others. That, that honestly is quite lacking these days in the church. Right? And I think it's lacking because we don't really believe God's going to take care of us. We're not really trusting that the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Like how it would revolutionize our community if we lived this way. And I just think, what would be the, what would be the testimony the Thai people, if they saw us as Christians really loving each other like this, I think they would long to be a part of that kind of community because that is not the community they live in. Right? They live in community, but it's not that kind of community. And I think it's our most powerful witness if we really lived this out, if we lived out God's love unselfishly, really caring for each other. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.